Even the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. I want you to think about this man's life before his friends came along. We know that he's a paralytic. Obviously, he was limited, he's restricted, couldn't get anywhere. But as soon as these good friends come along into his life, his whole life is transformed. Right? And in a sense, it's because of his good friends that his life is restored. Right? Even whenever we look at the way Christ heals this man, St. Mark specifically mentions that when he saw their faith, he said, your sins are forgiven you. Right? So it wasn't only by the work of the friends that they brought him to Christ and his life was transformed, but even by their faith in front of Christ, they restored this man back to life. St. Ambrose says, Every sick man should have intercessors to pray for him. For by their intercession, our weaknesses would be strengthened and our way would be straightened. And in a sense, these four friends are basically interceding for this paralytic man, right? When we're interceding for someone, when we're praying for someone, what are we doing? We're literally bringing the person to Christ, right? We're literally doing that by our prayers, right? Now, we do that in words, right? We're not literally carrying a person to church, but we carry the person in our hearts to God when we're interceding for them. And so, every sick man should have an intercessor to pray for him. The people around us, the people in our life, are a critical part of our journey to Christ. And we often belittle the impact of the people around us. But the people around us, especially in our journey to God, the people around us are a critical part of that whole journey. So today I want to talk to you about the way to live a life of repentance, the way to return back to God. How can we live a life of repentance? Remember, last week we spoke about the necessity and the value of repentance, right? And so today, we want to build on that and talk about how we can repent, how we can return back to God. And so as we said, the people around us are an integral part of that. They're a critical part of our journey back to God. Just as this man's life was restored by the presence and the help of his four friends, our life is restored back to God by the community around us. Right? The body of Christ around us that strengthens us, supports us, and prays for us. Right? St. Ambrose meditates on these four friends as the four evangelists. So in these four friends, he sees the entire church, the apostles. Right? The four evangelists which represent the gospel, which is the church. And so, in a sense, it was the church that brought this man to Christ. It was through the church that this man's life was restored, that he was brought back to Christ and his life was restored. And so it is through the church that we are also restored. It's through the community around us, the body of Christ around us. Without that, this man would have just been sitting in the same place for God knows how long. Right? And of course, God doesn't ignore his people. He chases after the lost sheep. Right? But he used these four friends to restore his life. And so the people around us are an integral part of our repentance, are an integral part of our journey back to God. We often belittle that. We belittle the significance of our community. And so often I hear people say, Abuna, you know, my life is tough. 
life is hard, I just want to come to church, I want to pray and go right back home and just live peacefully. That's my Christian walk. That's my life with God. I go to church, I pray, I go back home. And I have to be honest with you, that's not the way God intended for us to live. That's not the life of Christianity. Life of Christianity is a life of community, a life of fellowship. And repentance happens in the context of that fellowship. It happens in the context of that support. Right? And so there is no repentance without the church. And by definition, repentance is a restoration into the body of Christ. By definition, repentance is a restoration back into the body of Christ. Right? Think of the sacrament that we just celebrated this morning, the sacrament of baptism. The congregation has an integral role in that sacrament. The sacrament of baptism is not a private sacrament. It's not a private event, even though you know, we might often see that. You know, in the past, you know, it happens in the room in the back. The rest of the church has no idea what's going on. It's like a private event. But that's not the case. Right? It's a church function. It's, the, it's a sacrament for the entire community. And what would the congregation do throughout that sacrament? Prayer for the catechumen, the novice, the person that is receiving the sacrament of baptism and chrismation, the person that is entering into the church. So what is the rest of the church doing? They're standing there with open arms. They're welcoming the person. They're embracing the person. Not just by some emotional sentiment, but by their prayers. Right? And that's why we all pray together for the person who's baptized. Right? And so, when you think of repentance, which is essentially a second baptism, right? we say that repentance is a second baptism, it's only possible by the very same way that the first baptism is possible. Right? By the support of the church. Not just because the priest is the one who administers the sacrament as a representative of the church. But because the entire church is involved in that sacrament. They're involved in that person's journey back to God. They're in, involved in that person's repentance. Not in a judgmental way, but in a loving way, in a compassionate way. Right? Remember, there's a beautiful story in the life of St. Basil when this guy sold his soul to the devil to marry this girl. Right? Not that that would ever happen, but you know, one random time it happened. <laughs> and then later on realized that he made a big mistake. And obviously, whenever you sign a contract with the devil, you're doomed. Like, it's, it's over. <laughs> and so, St. Basil took him under his wings. They fasted and prayed for a few days. And when you realize that there's a struggle worth fighting for. He brought the church together and everybody attended in the church building as this man entered and they all prayed for him together. They prayed for him the entire service until finally this contract that he signed with the devil fell from the sky and basically just disintegrated into, the, into thin air. In the midst of the church. Why? Because the people were praying and supporting this man. They saw a lost soul and they were all involved in the person's repentance. Not like, oh, you're such an idiot. Who would ever do that? Like, what's wrong with you? Not in a judgmental way, but they saw the brokenness of their brother 
And they identified with that, in solidarity with that. Because we're all broken. We're all in need of the community's support. Without the church, I can't return back to God. Right? Me, as Father Joseph, I'm not telling you this in a theoretical way, but personally speaking, I need all of you. And hopefully everyone recognizes your need for the rest of the community too. And when that happens, then we can step outside of our you know, own little circle and tend to the needs of others. Right? Think about the sacrament of confession and, and how it developed in the church. Originally, it was a public sacrament. Obviously, as the church grew, it was harder to you know, conduct the sacrament in this way, but originally it was a public sacrament. Unfortunately though, it totally changed into this private isolated sacrament, totally detached from the rest of the church community. Which is such a tragedy. It's a tragedy because it loses the substance of that sacrament. It's not just like, oh, I fell, I committed a sin, I run to Abuna, off on my own, I give him my confession, and I'm back into the church, everyone's reconciled, it's cool. No. It's about reconciling with the church. Not just returning to the church, but the involvement of the entire church in that sacrament. James Dallin has a beautiful book on the topic. In this book, he talks about this tragic transition from the public setting to the private setting. And he says, with the rise of private penance, the private confession, the community's role was less important. The process of penance had been reduced to a ritual understood in its totality, almost exclusively juridical and impersonal terms. It became like a legal process, totally impersonal. There was little or no concern for the Spirit, the Eucharist, or the church community. Forgiveness and restoration to grace became the impersonal focus of an individualistic rite. It became just an individualistic ritual. Is that how I understand my return back to God? Do I see my repentance, my confession in that way? Or do I see it in the context of the entire community? Do I participate in the return and the repentance of my neighbor? Do I chase after the people that I haven't seen for a while? Do I chase after the lost sheep to comfort, to support, not to judge or to criticize, but to give that person a shoulder to lean on? Or am I just so consumed in my own affairs? And we have a lot going on, trust me. We're all busy, we all have obligations, we have bills to pay, you name it. But do we step outside of that and recognize that our family is in need? I have to ask myself, am I a real genuine part of my neighbor's repentance and return back to God? That's an essential question for us to ask. Am I a real genuine part of my neighbor's repentance and return to God? There's a survey in a book, The Inviting Church, it was written when I was born actually in 1987, so it's a little outdated. (laughs) But there's a lot to say from what this survey discovered. It looked at why people came to church. What really brought people to church? And they looked at many different factors, right? Like advertisements, you know, 
the pastoral invitation, like the priest inviting someone, or the priest actually going to visit someone, like pastoral visits or evangelism and all of that. And this is what they found. Out of all the people that come to church, like they surveyed thousands of people, I think it was over 50,000 people. 2% came because of advertisements. They just saw an advertisement about the church and they decided to come. 2%. 6% came by the pastoral invitation. Right? So if the priest personally invites you, right, your chances of coming triple go from 2 to 6%. Right? But still, only 6%. 6% again came by organized evangelism campaign. Right? Like an event or something that brought the person to church. But still, only 6%. No more significant than the personal pastoral invitation. 86% of the people that came to church came because friends or relatives actually brought them. 86%. That's a big deal. People tell me, Abuna... Like, I haven't seen this person, my cousin, you know, my son or daughter, can you please reach out? And I do, and I connect. But to be honest with you, unless there's a connection with the church body itself, a Buddha can, you know, run around uh, until his legs fall off. <laughs> it's not going to work. Right? We are a critical part of each other's lives. We are a critical part of each other's lives. Are we actually intentional about bringing people to Christ? We have to ask ourselves that question. Am I intentional? Or, you know, my life is hard. I just want to come to church. I want to pray. I want to go back home. I just want to pray. I want to go back home. I have enough to worry about Abuna. I have a lot going on. Don't you know I have this? I have that? I have this? Trust me, I have enough going on. Is that the narrative that feeds our mindset? There's another study by Tom Rainer. It showed that only 2% of church members invite an unchurched person. Only 2% of congregation members invite someone who doesn't attend the church. So there's probably like 100 people here. Only two of you would go to invite someone who's, who's not a part of the church. That's just the statistic. I'm not saying that's the case here. Right? Maybe all of you are a part of that 2%, <laughs> hopefully. But I have to ask myself if I'm really a part of that 2% or am I part of that 98% that just doesn't care to share the gospel? No, not just that I'm going to go stand in the corner of the street preaching and yelling at people to come to church and to believe in God or they're going to burn for eternity. That's not what I'm saying. But just to share the word of God, to share love. Right? To encourage others. Like, hey, I miss you. I haven't seen you for a while. Let's go to Bible study. Let's go to Vespers. Let's go to this meeting. Right? Is that the mindset that I have? Because that's the way we repent. We need each other. That's the way we return back to God. Right? Now, aside from these four friends, we can learn a lot from the man himself. Right? What did he really do? What did this paralytic men do. A lot of people think that he did nothing. And I have to be honest with you, that's not the case. It's not that he did nothing. He actually did a lot. This is something very tough. Abuna Tadris Melody says, the paralytic demonstrated his faith by his consent to be carried and lowered from the roof. 
His consent alone is a critical part of his repentance. His surrender, just to say, you know what? I'm going to let you carry me. I'm going to let you help me. A lot of people are just like, yo, I got this. I could like, live my life. Leave me alone. I don't need this. I don't need that. And we just want to like, stay in our zone and do our own thing. This paralytic man had the humility to say, you know what? I'm not too proud to have a few guys carry me. Right? He had to surrender. He had to just relax. Imagine if this paralytic man, as his friends are carrying him, he's fidgeting the whole time. Right? He's resisting. He's fidgeting, he's resisting, like, you know, his legs don't work, but he could have complained, could have been blabbing about whatever. Of course, it would have restricted the whole process, or even prevented these four men from carrying him to Christ. But what did he do? He relaxed. He simply surrendered. It's, it's almost like he let himself go into their hands. That is a critical part of our repentance. We can only repent in as much as we relax in God's hands. We can only return to God whenever we fall into His hands. A lot of times we think that repentance is tough. We think it's difficult or even impossible. And St. Paul spoke about this too. In Romans 7.18, he says, To will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. A lot of times we want to repent, we want to return back to God, we want to run to Him, we want to break our bad habits. We want to fix our mistakes. And we're trying, but we just can't. We have the will. The will to repent is present. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. Anybody even feel that way? I mean, I can identify with that all the time. Especially when we fall and we think repentance is all about getting back up. If you see a boxing match, someone gets knocked down, and you say, you got to fight, get back up. Like everyone's cheering for the person to get back. And it's a struggle. you got to get back up on your feet. And a lot of times we think repentance is like that. No, it's not. It's actually the exact opposite. Repentance is not fighting to stand back up, but simply falling into God's hands. Simply surrendering into His hands. It's hard to stand back up when you're exhausted, when you feel defeated, when you feel ashamed, when you feel the weight of sin. It's nearly impossible to stand back up on our own. But repentance is really nothing more than falling down. Imagine whenever you had a long day of work, and you walk into the house and you're so exhausted, what's the one and only thing you want to do? Is just collapse on your bed. I just want to fall down. <laughs> I want to sleep. Right? The easy thing to do is to just fall down. That is repentance. But we're falling into His hands. We're surrendering into His hands. We're letting ourselves go. Abu Namata Miskin says, Repentance is but a fall into the hands of God. Repentance is but a fall into the hands of God. Repentance is the simplest thing for us to do. It's to just gaze back to God. Father Matthew the poor says, Our being with God is, as it were, a return of the exiled creation to the bosom of its Creator. Like the return of Adam to paradise, prayer in itself is an atonement for the long hours we spent away from God in worldly cares and duties. Prayer is thus like a true repentance before God. Just the very act of prayer, when we turn our gaze to God, that is in and of itself repentance. 
Why? Because we go from a state of absence to a state of presence. Like we're detached from God. When we're not praying, we're detached. The moment I turn my gaze to God and I pray, I just return to Him. doesn't matter whether my prayers are prayers of repentance or prayers of gratitude or complaints or whatever it may be. The fact that I am redirecting my attention, my gaze back to God is in and of itself an act of repentance. That's all it is. Why do we complicate the process? And yes, there are steps to it. When I leave the sin behind and I confess and I expose myself to God, like, those are all important parts. Of, but at the very core, in its simplicity, is nothing more than directing my gaze back to God. All of you know the story of St. Paisa. Right? She grew up in a Christian home. Her parents loved her, cared for her. When they departed, they left her a lot of wealth to inherit. And so she invested all of this money to care for the poor. She had an orphanage and she cared for everyone who came her way. But little by little, as she gave all of her money, she started to fall into sins because she was so poor and getting desperate. And started to fall into different lusts and so on. And little by little, she turned into a prostitute. And she was living in a house of prostitution. When St. John the Short heard about this, he was heartbroken and ran back to St. Paisa. Because he knew that you know, that's not who she is. She's this charitable, loving, caring person that he always knew. So he ran over and he walks into this house of prostitution. The moment he sees her, he starts weeping. And she says, why are you weeping? It's because I see the demons dancing on your face. They're playing with you. They're toying with you. And she says, is there any hope for me? And he says, yes, but not here. And he just walks straight out. He couldn't bear to stand in this place anymore. He walks straight out. And then, what does she do? She follows after him. And they start to head to the monastery so she can continue her repentance. Right? And so they're making their way to the monastery so she can go and repent. You know, actually live with God. That night, because it was getting late, they wanted to get some rest. And so St. John laid on the ground at a distance and they slept. In the middle of the night, when her soul departed, and St. John sees this, and of course, he's concerned. She didn't even return to the monastery to finish her repentance. And like he was really worried about her salvation. So he asked God to reveal to him what happened to her. And he opened his eyes to see all of the angels actually carrying her soul up to heaven. And God tells him, the moment she left that house, her repentance was accepted. Why? Because she simply directed her gaze to God. I'm telling you, repentance is nothing more than that. Just fall into the hands of God. Fall into the hands of the church. Fall into the hands of the community. Yes, we're all broken. Yes, we're all weak. We're all sinful. And we have our flaws. But let's lean on each other. Let's lean on the church. Let's lean on this community. Let's be a part of each other's repentance. Let's pray for each other. Let's support each other. That's the only way this church will grow. May God give us the grace to follow in the footsteps of these four friends, to support each other, and to imitate this paralytic man who simply surrendered 
allowed his friends to care for him, and to God is due all glory forever. Amen.